0: Welcome to Transit Unplugged, now in our seventh season. I'm your host and producer, Paul Comfort. Today I'm talking with Adam Hill, editor-in-chief of London-based ITS International Magazine. Adam and I discuss how great high-speed rail is, and we compare notes on why it's so difficult to build, both there in England and here in the US. A big challenge in public transit worldwide is getting people out of their personal cars and onto trains and buses. Adam and I talk about that and how tools like congestion charging and low emission zones can help or hinder that. Adam talks about how London's new ultra-low emission zone, or ULES, is supposed to encourage taking transit, but there are a myriad of challenges to implementing it, including some political. It's a great lesson for us here in America and beyond in encouraging people to change their commuting habits. Join us for this fascinating discussion with one of the world's leading transportation experts, Adam Hill. And make sure you stay tuned for Mike's Minute after my interview with Adam. Yeah. <laughs> very good. You're at your nation's capital, and I'm near ours, near here in Washington, D.C. Adam, great to uh, great to have you on the podcast, my friend. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for inviting me. It is it's a great honor. Well, uh, you're welcome. You are uh, a self-described transit nerd and, of course, editor of ITS International Magazine. Tell me about uh, a little bit about your organization and yourself.
1: Sure. Well, ITS International is the leading platform for uh, advanced technology for traffic management and uh, urban mobility. We have print and digital uh, products. So the print magazine comes out six times a year. Um, we have digital platforms, social media, and so on. Um, something like 20,000 uh, readers, and we have a fortnightly newsletter, which goes to 38,000 transport uh, professionals. Around half our, we're based in the UK, but half our uh, readership is in uh, North
0: America. And for those of us in North America, what's a fortnight?
1: I'm so sorry. It's every two weeks.
0: That's all good. I think a lot of people know that, but it's actually not very common. I've actually been interacting quite a bit with some Brits lately. Um, My new book, uh, The Future of Public Transportation, or The New Future of Public Transportation, will be coming out in 2024, published by SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers. And just last week, I was in Austin, Texas, and guess who I ran into? Tell me. Andy Byford. (laughs) Fantastic. The commissioner of transportation. He was there at a conference I was speaking at. He and I were both speaking, and we got together afterward for drinks. And uh, I'm very excited about the work he's doing and a topic that you and I are going to talk about, which is bringing high-speed rail to the United States. It seems like Europe... And Asia have figured it out, but we're still, you know, uh, trying to get there.
1: Well, it's kind of you to say that Europe's figuring it out, because um, in the UK at the moment, we are struggling a little with uh, high-speed rail. There's a major project, HS2, which has hit the buffers. Is that is that perhaps fair to say? Um, it was originally designed to run from London to Birmingham, which is about 120 miles north, something like that. Then to run on two other great northern cities, Manchester and Leeds. Well, the northern bit, the bit after Birmingham, has really run into difficulty. And in fact, the Prime Minister this afternoon, um, is in Manchester, UK with Mayor Andy. Oh, yes, man, with Mayor Andy. And he's talking about whether or he won't be drawn on whether or not the high speed two line will eventually go to. Manchester, and I guess if you're actually in Manchester, you probably don't want to give any bad news to people there uh, today, but we'll see. Um, Yeah, I just read that.
0: That's very interesting. It's billions of dollars they've already spent on it uh, and getting it planned. Is that right? In engineering? That's absolutely right. And I mean, it's an extraordinary infrastructure
1: project. I mean, it's very ambitious, but I think um, there's quite a lot of consensus here that it would have made more sense to have started the work in the north of England, where connectivity between cities and towns is perhaps not as good as it is uh, within the southeast of England and around London, which is very well served. And the London to Birmingham route, for example, that's very quick already. That's, that's, that's a very, very convenient line. So the idea of making that quicker didn't necessarily make that much sense. But northern connectivity does make sense in England. And yet that is the bit that has been gradually sacrificed, cut back bit by bit over the last few years. And there may be further cuts to it as well. Not only that, Paul, the, uh, the line when it does come to London at the moment is not uh, going to go to the center of London. It's going to go to a place called Old Oak Collin, which is on the outskirts of London. Yeah. Now I've lived in London 30 years. I've never heard of Old Oak Collin. Neither mm. has anyone else. I've talked to. And it's just, you do wonder sometimes, these uh, great, high speed be rail is a fantastic means of creating connectivity, economic growth, et cetera, et cetera. We all get that, but you do have to get it right. And I think what's happening with HS2 at the moment in the UK, well, in England, I should say, yes. rather than the UK, shows that these big ticket, multi-billion dollar uh, yep. projects, they are hard, really hard to get right. Although I have to say, I think we're making a spectacular meal of it. There's Mm. difficult and then there's really difficult. So it's, but yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I'm fascinated by the idea of my speed speed rail in the U S as well. Um, 20 odd years ago, I took a train from LA to San Francisco. Although of course it didn't take a train from LA to San Francisco because it doesn't go to San Francisco. Um, I, you, you may be able to help me sort of with where it stops, but it stops near San Francisco. And then I had to get someone to pick me up and get a ride. You know, America just seems to me to be absolutely crying out for high speed rad. It would be yes. the most fantastic innovation. And, um, great that you've got the transit daddy
0: there to sort of That's right. help you out. Train daddy's here. We, um, It's funny, the story you told about that uh, project in England reminds me of what's happening here in the U.S. You're probably aware, but uh, the effort that is furthest along is the California high-speed rail project. Yeah, so in California, like you said, in England, it's very interesting. Another long-term high-speed rail project that has been whittled back little by little so that it's kind of going what critics would say are from, you know, somewhere no one really wants to go to or come from to the same on the other end. I mean, there are cities, there are people there, but they're not like LA, San Francisco, big places like that, big trip generators. Unlike what's happening in Florida here where a private company is moving ahead, and it's not high speed in a traditional sense, it's not over 200 miles per hour, but it's higher speed. Uh, And this is a company called Brightline Trains. uh, Mm -hmm. And they have uh, had a train going from Miami to West Palm Beach, and they just recently opened up a station in Orlando at the airport, great location. Uh, so that you can connect between the two. And it's this intercity transportation, Adam, that is where you've got distances that are too short to really fly, but too long to drive,
2: right? Sure.
0: Yeah. So anyway, very interesting. And now they're trying to start one uh, between LA and Las Vegas, which would be a great uh, trip generator because a lot of people go that way and they have to fly now. It's, It's too far. It's, you know, it's, just over, I think I did it a few years ago. I think it's like three and a half, four hours if you're going very fast, which I was. <laughs> but it's, but it's so interesting
1: because I was in Detroit just a few years ago, and when the that beautiful uh, mainline station uh, there was still a little bit in rack and ruin, and now having seen the pictures, it's just it's stunning the redevelopment that's gone on uh, around that area. But again, just you. I was walking around just thinking, I can't believe that this extraordinary sort of cathedral to public transport as was is no longer useful. And so I get, you know, things change, but some things do stay the same. And rail links are such a fantastic, well, A, it's a fantastic way to travel. It really is just one of the great ways to get around. Um, but B, it's efficient. It's, it can be cost-effective. It can be uh, time-effective. Oh, I just wonder why there isn't mainly the passion um, where that's gone. And again, I understand that there's, you know, the development of the automobile and the development of relatively cheap flights. Can it come back? You know the market backwards, Paul. Will we get to a point where high-speed rail in the US is something that is passionately championed by yeah. policymakers, etc.?
0: So it's the, you know, a lot of it's political, right? Because the politicians are the ones that appropriate the funds. And when you have a pendulum in politics in America, where we go from Republican to Democrat, parties back and forth, there's sometimes less enthusiasm or depending on where it's at, there's less enthusiasm sometimes and it stalls. But also, you know, that's not the only issue, Adam. Uh, When I was CEO of the MTA in Baltimore, when I got there in 2015, there was a study underway to look at high-speed rail between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And they said, we can get this down to a 15-minute trip, which is very exciting for people because a lot of people make that trip every day. Tens of thousands of people that drive their cars, and it takes an hour to two hours depending on traffic. If you could get that down to 15 minutes, you'd have a built-in ridership. So they were studying it when I got there. We got, I think, a 20-some million dollar grant from the federal government. We were looking at Japanese maglev technology. Our governor and my boss, the Secretary of Transportation, actually went to Japan to take a look at it up close and personal. And they came back very enthused about it. So we're in the end of 2023 now. Guess what's happening with it? They're still studying it. So, so uh, you know, I know there's a lot of things that have to be looked at, but gee whiz, you know, can't we do this a little faster? See, I've never been the crumbly, I never not know whether or Crowe because it just seems, um,
1: it is extraordinary. I mean, we, we've had some success recently in um, the Southeast of England with a thing called, it was called Crossrail. It's been reborn as the Elizabeth line. Oh yeah. I love that. I know you've been on it. I know a yeah. lot of, a, a lot of people have done some great uh, travelogues and so on from there. And it's the, it's fantastic line. It ri- runs from east of, east of London to west of London through the center, uh, stopping at mainly a lot of new stations, but you incorporating some of the old uh, underground tube stations and so on that were there. And it's extraordinary getting on it the first time. Um, it really was like running after walking. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, and it still is. I mean, a year on my enthusiasm is undimmed, but. One thing about something like that, and the reason the Elizabeth Line works so well as a user, as a consumer, as a rider, is its frequency. It not only takes you places you want to go, but it does it very regular intervals. It's rare that you're waiting more than 10 minutes to get a train. Now, what happened? My commute to the office, I, I live in North London, but I come to our office which a couple of times a week, which is where I am now, which is sort of to the south, uh, southeast of London, I'm going right round. The Elizabeth line stops about three stops away from my office. The problem then is I've got to change two just to go 10 minutes on another line, but it doesn't run very frequently. I can't time it right leaving from home. Um, so it's just not worth using in many ways because the connection just isn't there. Uh, for various reasons, when I leave the office to go home, I can time it; it's fine, so it works very well. But it was just one of those little indications of how it's wonderful to have these new infrastructure projects. And I'm really not complaining. I sound like, as we would say in England, a winger. I'm not complaining, yeah. but it's sometimes if things don't quite match up, it can be frustrating. It's yeah. very frustrating for users, I think, when. We're passionate advocates of getting people onto public transport, but I do understand sometimes if you're not so passionate and your car is a very convenient option, as it is for so many people everywhere in the world, yeah, you, you do need a bit more persuasion to get on. and You need it to be as simple as possible from everything, from the connectivity, the frequency, also the payments, of course, you know, that has to be simple too. So I've got sympathy with people who are more reluctant um, public transport users. Oh, we've just got to bring them on board. We've just got yeah. to uh we just got to keep spreading the word. I'm talking too much, but can I just say the way that you bring in uh, um I I really like the way that you have brought in travelogue and cuisine into your talking about public transit. I think it's oh, a great you. way of, not at all. It's a great way of just drawing people in and maybe getting people who didn't know they were interested in public transit interested. Uh, Because who wouldn't be? You've got Paella or, uh, you know, some great shots of Lisbon or wherever wherever you are. So, yeah, no, so that, but that's the thing. It's getting people interested in something that, um, you know, is when it's done right. Mass transit is just this extraordinary way of moving people around uh, great distances or even quite small distances, but very effectively, very efficiently. It's frustrating. And I do understand people's frustration when it's, their experiences not as good as it should be.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. And thank you for that Uh, compliment for our TV show, Transit Unplugged TV, where each month we go to a different city and we dive into their public transportation, but we also show you fun places you can go riding the public transportation. Again, the idea is to kind of expand upon the nuts and bolts of what it takes to run a transit system like you talked about, the frequency, maybe the technology um, and the headways, et cetera. And to say, hey, you know what? Like I just did in Austin, Texas. So I was there with Dottie, who is the CEO of the transit system, Dottie Watkins. And we're at a big, at their main major bus hub. And we filmed me saying to her, hey, I've heard about this place, Barton Springs, which is a big tourist attraction. People go and swim there. It's uh, cold water. It comes out of a spring. It's like 68 degrees. I want to jump in during the show, but we didn't have time. We were, we were scheduled for another event right after. But so we say, well, and I say to her, as we do on every episode, but how do I get there? And then she'll say how to get there as you get on the line 30, which comes right from here every 15 minutes, and it'll take you directly and drop you off right in front of Barton Springs. So the thought is, you know, just what you said, showing the fun part, the food, the music, the culture, uh, and all of them are accessible. And without mobility, so many people would not have access to all of that. But for those that do, and our taxpayers, we need to show them the fun side. They may not ride public transit. They may say, I don't want to spend my taxpayer subsidy dollars to subsidize people. They should charge them full freight. Well, you know what? It also helps these businesses stay uh, alive because it brings people to them. It provides employees. So for instance, you know, when I used to run the light rail system in Baltimore, one of the lines goes right to the airport and it's not just for passengers. Uh, Ricky, who is the CEO there, said, Paul, you know, you're bringing in most of our employees ride the light rail from Baltimore out to, so there's a lot to public transportation that the casual observer may not see. Right? No, absolutely.
1: But I think it's interesting. The fun stuff is great. And actually, I like, I really like that idea of showing people where they can go on public transit. But in the Bay, yeah. people aren't necessarily going to some places. They're going to work. They're, they're going That's to swim right. wherever. And getting people out of their cars and onto mass transit. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a difficult play, I think, particularly in many parts of the States and certainly in many parts of the UK. There's, you know, I live in London, so public transport is fantastic. You you know, you can get by without a car uh, or or, or, or driving relatively infrequently you go much further out it's more difficult so um i think as well we and by which actually i mean me have to be against simply because we have such a great experience of public transport to realize that for other people it's more of a hassle it's more difficult um and it's not as attractive an option so what do we do about that i think yep. uh,
0: well in in some places another catalyst for getting on public transit is congestion Right in the downtowns of big cities like New York here in the U.S. or in London there or in Singapore where I was at recently with Jeremy Yap. So the mayor there of London is in charge of transport for London directly. It's a department that reports to him, and it's not just over transit; it's over roadways and traffic signals and all that. And uh, they've had congestion charging there for quite a while, which I think people understand. But there's something new uh, called called an ultra low emission zone which the mayor is putting into place there, or ULEZ. Tell us about that and what's happening.
1: Well, ULEZ is, as you suggested, it is distinct from the congestion shower zone, which came first. ULEZ, the ultra-low emission zone, um, is actually in its initial stages, which it came into force a couple of years ago, three, three four years ago, um, is a zone into which if your car is not compliant, or your van, or your truck, or whatever, if it's not compliant with the ultra low emission zone regulations so you know it has to emit a certain level of uh, pollution um you have to pay 12 pounds 50 a day if you want to drive your vehicle into the zone what that means is in effect for most of central London and indeed even where I live which is sort of the inner suburbs of of London for the last uh, few years, you, your car, your vehicle has had to be compliant. So in the main, it means if you have a diesel powered vehicle, most of the older ones are not compliant. A lot of petrol car, but a lot of petrol cars are compliant. For example, my uh car at the moment is about 18 years old. It's a petrol car. It's compliant with you, Les. So it's not the case that you have to buy a new car to avoid paying 12 50 a day. Anyway, just in the last couple of months, we've had the Great ULS Extension, which means that now ULS doesn't just cover the inner part of London and the inner suburbs; it covers everything right out to the M25 motorway, which is the orbital highway that goes around uh, London.
0: We call that a now beltway here—a beltway around the city.
1: You, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, this has been a massive political hot potato because, um, and politics always comes to the, into these things, as as you well know. Um, There's been huge opposition to the idea of uh, pushing the ULAZ zone out to cover the whole of London. So a lot of misinformation about it, a lot of legitimate concerns as well. There will be somewhat people who do have to change their vehicles because otherwise they will be eligible to pay the £12.50 a day, which is a lot of money. Um, But equally, uh, TFL, Transport for London, estimates something like nine out of ten existing cars will already be ULAZ compliant. So it is uh, a worry which is perhaps out of scale with the actual problem. That said, it's a very emotive thing. People feeling they're not, be- they're not able to drive their car where they want, when they want. And it's definitely, that has definitely affected current political uh, debate and discourse in the UK because uh, we had a, uh, what's called a by-election which is where a sitting member of parliament, in this case, Boris Johnson, who used to be the prime minister, leaves their constituency. They say, I don't want to be an MP anymore. So you have to vote a new one in, but it doesn't come uh, after, you know, in a four-year election cycle. It comes in the right in the middle of a parliament. Um, and quite often the opposition party will win these elections because they can often be protest votes and so on. It was widely assumed that the Labour Party, the opposition party, would win the constituency called Uxbridge. In effect, by about 500 votes, Boris Johnson's party won. Now, this was something of a surprise. And part of the reason for it was that um, an anti-Ules expansion mobilisation went on. Uxbridge falls into the new expanded uh, Ules zone. So there was um that was able to be uh weaponized if you like, as a political issue, despite the fact it wasn't necessarily that germane, but nonetheless it was very very powerful um and I think as a result, political parties in the uk um, have looked at that and said, hang on, maybe this uh, adds- Maybe this ULES thing, maybe people don't want to be told that they can't drive their car. Maybe they don't like uh, the expansion. Um, And this is fed into a few sort of big announcements
0: that we've had here over the last month. Yes, I just saw that. Yeah, your prime minister made an announcement. Yeah. Absolutely. So we revised some net zero targets. We
1: revised some deep green targets. And we're now, you know, the prime minister has been talking about the fact there's a in, in inverted commas, a war on motorists. And this is very, very attractive to a lot of people because loads of people drive cars and they think they suddenly think, wow, we're under attack. No, I don't think they are. I think, you know, this is a, this is politicizing, but it, and it might be quite smart politicizing, but it's, um, it's, I think a good illustration of the way that, um, if you seek to impose any restriction on the way we move around our, as we see it, our individual freedom, that does come fraught with political risk. I think which is also why the the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has actually been quite bold. And again, whether you agree with him or not, it is undoubtedly bold to extend the US zone because it hasn't been fantastically popular. So, you know, so many things wrapped in there. I think another thing, and Paul, sorry, I am am going on, so please- This is interesting though, yeah. But, But- if uh, one of the really interesting things, as we were saying before, how do we get people out of their cars? How do we get them to um, use public transit? Well, we can get them out of the cars by penalising them by saying, you know, if your car doesn't comply with these emissions standards, you need to pay twelve pounds fifty a day, and that will be a natural way of pushing people onto public transport. But the public transport has to exist; the connectivity has to be there for those people. Otherwise, they will either get resentful, not not unreasonably if they feel they're, um, uh, you know, um, being discriminated against in some way. Um, Or I guess they just won't, they won't comply. And I think part of the reason that ULE's expansion perhaps will uh, succeed, and will, I think, win people over, is that there is a pledge by the Mayor of London to use the money that is taken from it to invest in public transit Around London. So in the outer suburbs where the, the connectivity is perhaps not as good, certainly not as good as it is in the center of London. So but that's a really interesting idea. That's an interesting link, a direct link between you get out of your car and we are going to invest in public transport. And yeah. I think that's got to be the way forward. There's no point just penalizing people. There has to be some, um, they've got to see some gain. So we'll see. It's very, very early days. The expansion has only been in the last year or so. Uh, The mayor of London is up for re-election next year. We'll have a general election in the UK next year. We'll see. There's a lot of politics, but I think I I do guarantee that motorists are going to be very much um, at the centre of politics in the UK for the next year, 18 months, because they're a powerful constituency. Most of us are motorists as well as being other things. We're also cyclists, we're pedestrians, we're public right. transports, we're parents. So, you know, arguments around better air quality, improved road safety, they're also very powerful as well. They're powerful arguments. Pe- people get them. So there's a lot of different factors at play, I think, certainly here. And, you know, this is a microcosm, obviously, of what's going on in many other countries. I'm very interested to see how the New York City congestion zone turns out I'm fascinated by the idea of the motorists in the capital of the world uh, being told when they can drive. How's, I mean,
0: what do you think? How's that going to go down? Well, it's, it's, um, it's moving forward in New York city. As we speak, it was passed and adopted and allowed. Uh, and uh, my understanding is you know, they're putting up cameras, et cetera. Uh, but it is have, you know, the people in New Jersey are suing New York, because a lot of them are going to have to pay going in. So in the end, like most things here in the U.S., it'll probably be decided by the courts. So uh, but thank you, Adam. This has been a fascinating look of comparison and contrast, I think, between what's happening in public transportation here in the U.S. and there in, in uh, what we call Great Britain, which I know is uh, now the United Kingdom. But really, we talked a lot about what's happening in England, uh, which is the basis of it. And and uh, so thank you for this uh, great talk. And if people want to read more about this type of things, they of course can subscribe to your magazine, ITS International. We'll have information on the show notes about how to do that. Thank you again, Adam.
2: Thank you, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hi, this is Mike Bismar and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about leadership, mentorship and kindness with the hopes it'll inspire you to pay it forward. It was great today to hear Paul and Adam talk about the fun stuff of transit. As I'm excited to be attending the Canadian Urban Transit Association's fall conference and trade show this week, participating on a leadership panel with Paul, as well as speaking to the Young Leaders Summit about the power of mentorship, and it is always fun to be here. It's a perfect parlay for all the subjects I talk about when we cover leadership, mentorship, and kindness. I wanted to talk a bit about the Young Leaders Summit and those young leaders that we are surrounded with at the agencies and companies we represent. It's always inspiring to see the passion and excitement that many new folks or early career folks have, the ideas they bring, and the ambition they have to be change makers. It also reiterates the importance to share and pass on knowledge, be willing to help and listen. Leadership and mentorship can take on many forms and both are always two-way streets. But the example I will use in terms of leadership is with this Young Leaders Summit, the young leaders that have made up part of the steering committee and taken the lead on organizing this particular summit for 63 delegates, building an incredibly action-packed few days of transit-related sessions, learnings, and team-building exercises. The idea is, of course, to encourage the future generation of leaders and to build excitement for transit in general, and to have folks consider transit as a career path. It's always my honor to be involved in these summits and have an opportunity to address the young leader, delegates, about the values of mentorship and networking. And I truly believe that peer-to-peer relationships, learning, and sharing in our industry fall right into that fun stuff category. As I sign off, I'm headed to ride the new Valley Line Southeast Light Rail that opened just last week here in the host city of Edmonton and have some more fun. Thanks for listening. Kindness is cool.
3: Hi, this is Tris Hussey, editor of the Transit Unplugged podcast. Thank you for listening to today's show. And a special thanks to our guest, Adam Hill, editor-in-chief of ITS International Magazine. And coming up next week on the show, Paul's talking with Scott Smith, former CEO of Valley Metro in Arizona. While you're listening to the podcast, if you could do us a favor by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to the show, we'd really appreciate it. Waiting and reviewing the show helps other people find Transit Unplugged and become part of our transit enthusiast community. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us anytime at info at Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling those stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.